0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Mary Alice Monroe, and we're going to be talking about her latest book, The Summer of Lost and Found. Mary Alice, welcome back to the Journal.
1: Oh, Walter, thank you for having me.
0: And I looked at my calendar for last year. This time literally last year we were supposed to be in the studio recording an interview <laughs> about what was then your latest book on Ocean Boulevard yes. but something called covid came in oh, in, yes. in between that um and of course we could we could do no more recording in the studios you couldn't do your book
1: mm-hmm, bookstore book yeah.
0: visits um
1: completely eradicated
0: it, yeah and so when did you decide to set your latest book, the new book, in the pandemic?
1: It was in the pandemic. I actually was slated to do some research on another species. And, of course, I wasn't going to go anywhere. I was actually up in North Carolina in my house up there. And the shelter-in-place order came down. And I, at first, like everybody else, I was stymied. What am I going to do? My life is on hold and our book tours were canceled and actually that's when me and Mary Kay Andrews and Patty Callahan Henry talked and all our book tours were canceled and we got on the something called Zoom and believe me I didn't know what a Zoom was back then just a year <laughs> ago and we started talking and we invited Christy Woodson-Harvey and Kristen Harmel to join us. And that's when Friends in Fiction, our weekly show, started. And that got us talking about what are we going to do in this new world. And I took long walks. I was up in the mountains in North Carolina. And I said, Mary Alice, you're not able to, you know, research a wild species. But what you do as a naturalist is sit back and observe and pay attention. And I realized we were going through, myself, the world, through something we've never gone through before. This was going to be an experience for families, for relationships, unlike any before. So I thought, I'm going to observe the human species this time (laughs) and also what's in our own backyard. And that's when I decided to go back to the Beach House series because this is a family, the Rutledge family in Charleston, that I've been writing for almost 20 years now. And I have a legion of fans who read that series. So what better family to tap into than that? And I began doing just that, creating a story of the generations, the new generation, the 20s and 18-year-olds, and the older generation, which is Kara and Emmy in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and all bound together in a very small community during one summer.
0: Your, your characters, like the rest of us, first of all, don't really know what's hit them. Right. All of a sudden, there are uh, restrictions here in South Carolina. In March, everything shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we closed the studio. We didn't. That's why I said you were, yes. you were scheduled for me. <laughs>
1: no one did nothing. <laughs> twenty twenty. <laughs>
0: that 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 did not happen. Everybody began searching for the latest source of toilet paper or mm-hmm. Kleenex mm-hmm. or or what have you. And there was an interesting story in Columbia about that. Um, there was some shutdown, but remember, liquor stores were. Essential businesses. Yes. (laughs) So. (laughs) Oh, yes. I, I, I went to our local liquor store, and they had a box of Toilet paper, environmental green toilet yes. paper. If you bought for every bottle, if you bought a bottle of liquor, you could, a roll of, you, could get a roll, you could buy oh, a roll hysterical. of toilet paper.
1: But that's part of the humor that came out of all of this. Well,
0: I bought a case of wine and I said, can I buy 12 rolls of toilet paper?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which that's I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's what I found when I wrote the book is that, first of all, the touchstones, just your memory. Of what what would happen? I think a lot of people are reading the book, going, "Oh my gosh, I remember that! I remember that!" Because it happened a year ago, but we are sort of shoving it aside in our memories. So I want it to be a touchstone. But also, there's a lot of funny memories. I think this is the funniest book that I've ever written. Just that people close together and what they've done and how they've learned to zig and zag.
0: Yes, and and sometimes they don't exactly jive, but that's... that's, that's <laughs> There's that, that too. <laughs> that, that, the Bedfellows get a little bit confused at one, at one yes, point. Yes, there
1: were love interests in this book, yes. a love triangle, and that kept it interesting. And it also was a direct result of people being close together in a small area. And I th- I think for me, the love triangle was interesting because it's a young woman at the beginning of the book, as you said, she's laid off, Linnea. And it's interesting to note, Linnea was only eight years old in the first beach house, and now she's 24, 25. So it's fun to watch these this next generation emerge in this book. She's laid off, and sort of like everyone else at that age group or at any age group who is suddenly furloughed, they have no income. And what does she do? She's, she's scared. She's afraid. Her old boyfriend is quarantining next door, and her new boyfriend is trying to get in to see her. And throughout this love triangle season... Yes, she's looking at both men and wondering, can I I love two men at the same time? But I think the lesson that was so interesting for me to observe for so many young people is that when they were unemployed and when they were home, they had time to reflect, is this a job I really want? What other interests do I have? Some people went to school to pursue new careers. And most importantly for Linnea, it wasn't so much, is she going to choose John or Gordon? It's what choices is she going to make for herself? And that was the transformation.
0: Yes, I think the introspection is, is something that, that's an important part of, of this story. And she has the beach house because her grandmother,
1: yes, dear
0: Carol says, yeah.
1: have it. Uh, that legacy, can I just say that that is the main theme of the book, and I didn't know it when I wrote the book, but the legacy of the beach house was for one woman to help another woman or for anyone to lend a helping hand. So from Lovey to Kara and Kara now to Linnea, this is the passing of a torch. And I, I learned, as my characters learned, Because don't forget, I'm writing this book in real time. These are my lessons that I learned that lending a helping hand to people during this time, this year like no other, was important for our own well-being, our own sense of worth.
0: Well, uh, you, you mentioned people reading this book and uh, say, "Oh, this happened to me." Well, mm. I would read passages aloud to Neela and the one with Gordon, <laughs> who is in the UK, and actually, uh, son, a son is in the, a child yes. is Cooper. Cooper is in yeah. is in the UK, trying to get out on the last flight. Well, back when President Trump was going to close down the
1: airports. the
0: airplanes, yeah. We had a grandson who was in Spain for
1: uh, no. <laughs>
0: spring break. And being a 21-year-old, of course, he and his girlfriend had decided to go to Mallorca, leaving their passports in their hotel back in, in Spain. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: well, no. the parents were kind of figuring out how, what to do. And then Nila, who can take care of any situation, she got on the phone. She got a message to the kids of you get yourself pick up your passports, and you go to the airport. If you're not in line three hours ahead of time, you're not going to make it. They were on one of the last flights to come in, the plane made a stop in Ireland. And among the people who got on the plane then were well, Hootie and the Blowfish.
1: Oh, my <laughs> goodness. That was a bonus. <laughs> so,
0: but, you know, this, this worry with the parents, are they yeah. going to get
1: home? You know, well, can- this happened in our family as well. And I did find that it was really interesting to see how the two generations were uh, looking at the this situation with the pandemic differently. I think for the young people, they were their lives came to an end. They were trying to get settled, find a place to roost. You know, where can I live for free? Hey, Mom and Dad, is that room still open? I think a lot of us went through that. For the older generation, I think we were more concerned about our health. And, you know, we were more vulnerable. But we were also looking to our young, thinking, how can we help them too? So it was... Um, different generations helping each other even if they couldn't see each other.
0: And like your character David our Stewart came back with COVID.
1: Yes. And when <gasps> he got sorry.
0: home his parents put him in the man cave which for was quarantine. upstairs <laughs> separated from the rest of the house yes. and his mother would leave his food outside the door. He was he was quarantined for 2 weeks and you know
1: Walter you lived my novel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we we did. Early on, Palmer, the father of Linnea, throughout your novels, he's one of my least favorite characters. Yes, he, he's a yes. real jerk. Uh, <laughs> he
1: tries I, hard, but he, he, he yeah, well, he's, <laughs> he, w- if he if he,
0: if he, if you had him be a nice guy, he would not be a foil for his mother or for his children.
1: Yes, that's uh,
0: true. Immediately, his reaction is, "Well, I'm not going to wear that damn mask." Right. Uh, it, it doesn't work. His wife tries to cajole him to be a little bit better. But the younger generation in this case, as well as his mother, were saying, bud, this is what you got to do.
1: Yeah. And I think that was the reality. And I... I didn't want to bring any politics into this book. I didn't want to bring my personal feelings in. I was trying to show the world as I observed it. And that's what I do when I look at the natural world. I have to observe. I don't make judgments on the wildlife that I'm looking at. I just present what I see. And that's what I tried to do with this novel. And it's, it's. I like to think my purpose was to show that while we were shut down and we had frustrations – There were also opportunities that we could not have experienced if it were not for this pandemic. We were put together in small groups that we saw each other. We went outside more. We went out to our backyard, so families sat together and talked more often than they were. They weren't always on electronics. We noticed what was in our backyard. I, I was really excited that the species I was going to look at other than humans was, what's in my backyard? The the Jeremiah the bullfrog story. Oh. <laughs> I love that. That actually came from my um, PR manager, Kathy Bennett. That actually is her story. Uh, the bull, you know, little children, what is that noise? They didn't know it was a bullfrog. And then tongue-in-cheek, the adults start singing. Oh, uh-
0: I love that. (laughs) That's my generation, 1971.
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) We can sing it right now, I bet.
0: (laughs) No, you don't want me to. I I sound like a bullfrog.
1: (laughs) But that's the thing. We're talking about it. We're laughing in memory. And that's why I like to think this this story, I call it a series of smiles. There's some tough moments when they – the hurdles that they have to get over. But in the end, I really wanted people to – to reflect with joy, but also sincerity about what they learned and what transformations they may have gone through as they go through it with my characters.
0: Well, let's get back to Linnea, because she is an interesting character. She does have her dream job working at the aquarium, South Carolina Aquarium in in Charleston. And then, of course, it shut down. Uh, Which happened. Which, which happened, and since we read the Post and Courier online every day, they headed an appeal because people were worried that the aquarium was literally going to crash.
1: Right, because they still had the animals to feed with a shutdown. And I was, I'm was i really grateful to the community for all the donations that came in because the aquarium weathered it. In fact, this, this um, tour, I'm going to have my launch at the aquarium. <laughs> It'll be virtual. <laughs> but we're still doing it.
0: Mary Alice, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with best-selling author Mary Alice Monroe about her latest book, The Summer of Lost and Found. Mary Alice, because of COVID and other things, it's been a couple of years since we were together, and... At one point, you were going to have your books made – or several of your books made into movies.
1: Yes. Well, we did have – The Beach House was the Hallmark Hall of Fame film. And I've always loved the Hall of Famers because they just picked the best books and they just really gave the the time. And I was so pleased. Andy McDowell is the um, lovey, the heroine of the book. And as a matter of fact, it forged a friendship. Andy and I are still very close friends. And I consider her a gift – in my life. And up because of COVID, a lot of projects have been put on the back shelf. And now we're starting to dust them off and look at them again. And in fact, Andy and I are talking about continuing the Beach House series, which I'm very excited about in a couple other projects.
0: All right. Was it filmed on location?
1: It was filmed on Tybee, which a beautiful old house and it they had, <laughs> it was so funny. If you look at the movie, it's so perfectly shot. But the big old turtle that came ashore was a mechanical turtle. Oh my gosh. I kept saying, you know, when you get to the end of October, you won't see a lot of sea turtles along the coast of the United States. And so by the time we actually started filming, the turtles were long gone. (laughs) But it's the beauty of the film that they were able to get it done. And Walter, I do remember too, we were talking about my dream of writing a middle grade book. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited in the years since I've seen you, I have written a middle grade book called The Islanders. And I've written it with my longtime colleague, Angela May. Oh. And it'll be out this June 15th. And we are so excited because it's really becoming embraced by the school systems. They're, the curriculums are being adapted um, to include – the islanders. And it takes place on an island you probably love, Deweese Island, mm-hmm. which is a, a sanctuary right off Isle of Palms and a bird sanctuary in particular. You can, own, for those of you who don't know Deweese, you can only access it by ferry. There are no stores, no cars, no nothing and <laughs> except houses in and nature. And for these t- three children who are stuck on the island in their mind. It's going to be the worst summer ever because they have no Wi-Fi either. There is Wi-Fi on Dewey's. However, Jake, the young boy's grandmother, doesn't believe in the internet. So he has no Wi-Fi. And what I've done in the book with Angela, and I'm very thrilled, is unplug the kids. We're showing them the that the wild isn't so wild if you get to know the names of the plants and the trees. So there are snakes and alligators and bugs that the kids are afraid of at the beginning, but not by the end. And these three unlikely children explore. Of course, there are turtles. Something happens where they get in trouble, so their community service is joining the dawn patrol for the sea turtles. And of course, they're like, oh, we don't want to take care of those turtles But then they fall in love with the the species like we all do, and they're coyotes, and they're going to save the nest, and it's a real adventure. Wait a minute. Save the coyotes? Oh, save the turtles. Save the nest. (laughs) The coyotes are predating the nest, so the kids are trying to find a way to save it. And it's in the end, it's a beautiful story of kids unplugging and finding out how wonderful it is to be out in the wild and using your imagination.
0: That is fabulous.
1: And you say it'll be out shortly? June 15th okay. from Aladdin Books. And we are going to be talking to students all across South Carolina. When you mentioned
0: the first time children are exposed to something uh, they're, that they don't know in the marsh, what have you, they're scared. And, yes. And yes. Of course, in this book as well, Little the hope. first time there's a bullfrog. Yes somebody teasing them says, oh, that's a that's a crocodile.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or an alligator, because when those alligators make their, their mating calls in the spring, they have this big rumble. You don't forget it when you've heard it. And, she, you know, that whole sense of wonder that children have. And I think that's what I try and do in the Summer of Lost and Found is to create that sense of wonder that you go out in your backyard, that you usually go out to weed, you have a purpose. But when you have time, when you slow down, you begin to take notice of the little things that are very special, that are exotic in your own backyard.
0: Well, of course, there, there is always the struggle in this family of how fancy should the beach house be? Yes. And, yeah. of course, Linnea wants to keep the beach house the way it has been for generations. Yes. Daddy would like nothing better than to tear it down. <laughs> and build a McMansion.
1: <laughs> yes, and that's the beauty of the of the appreciating the vintage. And what the beach house means. Loving the grandmother always said the beach house was more a state of mind than a place. And this is part of the legacy that you it's the memories. And that raises the question for me in my personal life as well as what I raise for my readers, is when Kara tells Linnea, I'm passing this tradition down to you to help other people, which she does. Linnea opens the house to her brother, to a friend, um, a group of people who can stay because they have no place else to go. They, they need a sheltering place. And the word shelter is so important. But also that sense of helping one another or leaving a legacy is a question that I think, especially at a certain time in our lives, that we Ask ourselves, and certainly the pandemic brought that question up in my own mind, what is the legacy that I'm going to leave? I have a professional legacy, and that's my body of work that I've worked for 20 years with the Beach House series and all the books set against an environmental species to make my readers familiar and aware of what's wild in a beautiful story setting. But then there's the personal legacy— What am I leaving my children that I can be proud of? And that's the question that's raised in the book. But as I was writing this book in real time, it was my own reflection as well. What am I leaving in these last few precious years of this precious life of mine for the next generation? And what was your conclusion? Time. The Gift of Time. For years, I studied Eckhart Tolle, who talked about living in the present. And I don't think I really got it until I lived through this past year. And I understood that I've always been living in my busy life for what's coming up, either in book tour or what's my next project. But I didn't stop to just live fully for today. And I think one of the advantages that COVID taught us is a kind of reimagining our lives. For the what we choose to do every single day for the rest of our lives. Live for the moment, live for the present because yeah. we don't know what the next day is going to bring. And isn't that the lesson of the whole pandemic?
0: Well, yes, carpe diem.
1: But you know to know it and to live through it, to fully understand it, is different.
0: It is, and you've got characters who are—they are confronting. They're losing their jobs. The, the, the other young woman that
1: uh, Annabelle, yes, it,
0: it comes in. She has lost her job. Yes, and her background is such that she doesn't really, literally, does not have any place to go. To go, and she appears with a suitcase. Her landlord's gotten rid of everything else that the poor child owns. Yes, um, that
1: happened to a lot of people. Uh, a lot of kids came home.
0: A lot of kids came home, and parents have to have to adjust to this. And I love the interaction of the young young people. <laughs> Linnea is a neat freak. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, she takes the house very seriously. <laughs>
0: and and Anna is something of a, a
1: slob. Slob.
0: <laughs> as is Cooper, who is yes. Linnea's brother. Yeah. And he and Anna hook up. Yes. Um, much to the chagrin of Mama, but it's that's a wonderful you, part of the story.
1: <laughs> it's very funny because it's true. I have to tell you, I was writing the Next Generation, Linnea Cooper and Annabelle and Gordon and all these young people, and I had this very firm idea of what was appropriate for my <laughs> characters to do. And my daughter, who is talk about legacy, she helped me with the book and said, "Now, Mama." that just, we wouldn't do that. That's just not the way we are. And she said, of course they'd get together. And I'm like, oh, no, not in my house. <laughs> and they, she said, now, Mama, you have to make it real. So I had, I put it in the book. So you have the young people having a young life in the beach house, and the, and the Mama comes, and she's horrified. She this is this is turning into a brothel. <laughs> and, in fact, Kara's wisdom is you've got, to let go and let these children live their own lives. And that was both humorous but I think something that a lot of mothers and fathers out there are going to identify with.
0: They and others are going to identify with with a lot of what you have to say. And of course you get in your environmental message. Of course. Talking about climate change mm-hmm. and the things that people are dealing with and plastics and yes. And, and that actually was of course, happened in Charleston with those plastic things coming up on...
1: The nurdles, the yes. The little
0: plastic balls.
1: And how they're actually being consumed by the fish. And, of course, we eat the fish. So it's a, it's a real concern. And I just gently bring it in as a reminder to people to pay attention. I also have that Light One Candle group that is through my Facebook, and it is a group of people everyone's welcome to join, where we just share ideas. It's not political. It's really a group of people saying, how can I make a difference? How can I just light one candle in my own life? You know, it seems overpowering to know that the oceans are full of plastic. Well, maybe just don't use a plastic straw, and that's enough. You just try.
0: Well, one of your characters is Gordon. He's a Brit yes. uh, who studies uh, sea life, and he does make it over here, yes. uh, and he becomes part of the commune. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the pod. The
0: pad. Uh, the pod, excuse yes. me. And I'm just going to read this passage, I, th- I think, rather than trying to explain it. Gordon had come to Charleston to continue research on the landmark study he had participated in along the Cornish coast they examined 50 animals from 10 species of dolphins, seals, and whales and found microplastics in all of them. We need to know the fish are getting the microplastics, he said. Is it directly from the water or from their prey? This would mean that the plastics are transferred through the food chain. If the fish eat the plastic and we eat the fish, that's right, he confirmed. We've documented that even the deepest dwelling marine organisms have plastic in their stomachs, he sighed. It's a concern.
1: Yeah. That's a typical scientist's careful statement. (laughs) It's a concern. It's a big worry for all of us. And I I put it in conversation because the story, of course, is between Linnea and Gordon. Are you coming? We want you to – you know, I miss you. It's a love story. But in the conversation, you can have these touchstones that the reader can listen to and go, okay – I get the point without me having to point it out too hard.
0: Well, if you become preachy, you lose your audience. That's
1: not my job. I, know. I I'm a storyteller, and I I like to know that if, that I am getting the word out in a way that I would say to my readers if I was having coffee with them at Starbucks.
0: Well, being locked down, they they begin to look for something else to do to entertain themselves. They the younger ones do discover or rediscover the marsh. What did you do rediscover?
1: Oh, well, I was up in the mountains so um, I got another dog. I think a lot of us got dogs. So it brings my troop to four and I think just paying attention to trees. I've become quite enamored with trees and I'm researching them now, so I suspect we'll have a book in the future.
0: We we paid attention to birds. Yes. We have incredible bird life in our neighborhood, including such things as painted buntings, which appeared— <gasps> I
1: adore
0: painted yeah. buntings. It's unusual, but because the climate has changed, they're coming a little bit further inland. Yes. Um, but we have blue bir- I mean, bluebirds, blue jay. I mean, you, you know— you name it. And there's an egret who lives near, <laughs> in, a, in a swamp near us. So, I mean, it's—
1: uh, Well, that's why in the novel I had um, John, the, the boyfriend next door, part of the triangle. He is a kind of a, a handyman, and he built a birdhouse so that the Linnea and the little girl, who Hope is the little girl who she's babysitting for— and they can learn about the birds as they come to the feeder, which I think is important. Oh, a fun part about what I learned a lot about, and we in South Carolina know what that long bench is between two rocking sort of sea horses not seahorses, horses—that that is called a joggling board. And I think it was fun to bring the joggling board in because this is a group of surfers, these young kids, and that's what they did. They went out to the ocean and they surfed, and that's my children. And there really was a Instagram video contest about trying to create an indoor, inside, on land surfing situation. So they used the joggling board for that and created a really fun scene. But it also allowed me to bring in some of the culture of South Carolina, and I love a good joggling board. Well,
0: Mary Alice, describe for our listeners how they did surfing on a joggling <laughs> board. I mean, w- did they mount the joggling board?
1: Yes. Again, the joggling board, it's a joggler. It, it was designed originally in history in the 1800s. It it's a, actually came from an idea from a family family member who wrote to his family in Scotland and said, we have rheumatoid arthritis or arthritis back then, and what can we do to help? And they sent a design for this longboard between two rocking, is it a sawhorse? That sort of a it's thing it's at the end. It's basically a
0: sawhorse, yes.
1: And it g- gently bounces up and down. So it's been known as a courting bench over the years, because as two people sat on the front porch, they sort of bounce closer together. (laughs) So there's this contest, and these are a bunch of surfers, and John says, I have a great idea. We will create uh, a surfing situation on top of the joggling board. Now, in this space, this artist's space with murals of um, all different kinds of underwater sea creatures, they put the joggling board, and they had long pieces of fabric, and they Waved it up and down to pretend it was the ocean underneath, and they all put on their wetsuits, and they took turns videoing um, them jumping on the on the, the juggling board and pretending with arms out that they were surfing, for this contest that actually did exist. You can Google it; it's it, it's real, and it, there's a little scenario that goes on in terms of the personalities between them. But it was a really fun way to bring in the joggling board as a surfboard for indoors. Now I think I'm starting something. A whole new generation of kids are going to start practicing surfing on joggling boards. Well, who,
0: who may not even <laughs> realize that there might be a, a, a joggling board in the grandma's barn or attic that they had not, <laughs> they not
1: say, You know what? I think I may have come across something. We always— are careful of our balance as we get older. So everyone out there, if you can stand on that juggling board and bounce a little bit, you're doing a real good job.
0: (laughs) Now, you had COVID.
1: I did. All right.
0: Would you mind talking about that a little bit?
1: I was returning home from South America late February, and I arrived, and I got sick immediately. And I didn't... There were people coughing in the airports and on my plane, like they were coughing out their lungs. And I came home and immediately was getting chills like I'd never had before, and I started coughing. And Marjorie Wentworth, who you know very well, our poet laureate, um, she said, "Meryl, you really ought to get that checked," because I thought it was just a flu; it would go away. This was, you know, end of February, so by the first or second of March, I went into the doctor. And they were aware of something called the coronavirus, but there were no tests. So they tested me, did blood tests, found out it wasn't a flu, and I was told it was, quote, a virus. But every symptom I had was um, shakes and, and coughing, and it lasted harshly for five days, and it did not linger beyond. But I was very tired for weeks and weeks, And I do think my voice changed a little bit. It seems even lower than it used to be, more raspy. And I went up into the mountains to open up the house, and that's when the order came through to shelter in place. And I just thought it would be a quiet place to be. And it's interesting. um, My life was very interesting because I I have five sisters, and I had a phone call with one sister in L.A., who was a massage therapist and lost her job. And I said, well, don't stay in your condo. Come to my mountains. And she did. And then my other sister in Chicago is a psychotherapist, and she was unable to see patients, and she was stuck in a condo in the city. And I said, come to my mountains. And she did. And my niece, who was taking care of the house while I was in South America, she was in the service industry, lost her job, 30 years old, no place to go, just like Linnea, I said, come to my mountains. And she did. So we had four women living together at this house called Windover. We called ourselves the Women of Windover. And I realized in retrospect that no other time in our lives could we have come together to live for that long a period of time for the summer. And I thought to myself, this was a true gift of time, and I encourage all my listeners today, if sisters, brothers, find time to go away for a week, a long weekend together, and we re- recreate the nursery, because that is one of the gifts that my characters realized, and that I realized living through this year like no other. There were joys, there were gifts that we received that we would never have anticipated.
0: Well, I did not ask my brother and sister to come.
1: (laughs) come. (laughs) Well, my children all took over my house on the island, so I couldn't go home anyway.
0: (laughs) But my brother, sister, and I have been in more frequent contact Mm. over the last year than we have in the past. Mm -hmm. We all live in different places. Of course, yes, I learned to Zoom. Yes, Uh, But, you know, Zooming with your grandchildren... Uh, it's not the same thing as In being life. there with them or hugging them. In three weeks, I'm going to Neil and I are flying to D.C. to see our daughter Eliza, whom we have not seen since June of 2019. I'm so happy ha-
1: for you. That's you know, wonderful.
0: You know, it's been almost two years. Mm. And
1: well, I felt that way when I saw you today, Walter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. I do feel that the the lack of saying goodbye to loved ones who passed was very hard. I brought that up in the novel. I lost a brother and a nephew. And my mother-in-law passed during the same time, not of COVID, but with as a result of the restrictions in her home. In her um, home, I could not visit. And in in the novel Flo, who's a character everyone loves, she's in her 80s now, and she's been slipping with Alzheimer's for a number of books. And in this book, it's getting really bad. But they are afraid, they meaning Kara and Emmy, to put her in a hospital situation Because they would never see her again. They would not be able to visit. And I know that happened to me, and I'm sure it happened to a number of listeners, where loved ones were behind the glass. We could not hug them. And that sense of loss is one of the hardest things people faced during COVID. But I think the hurdles and the hurts— is what prompted our own reawakening of how precious the time we have left is.
0: It This is a discussion I have had with a group of fraternity brothers who we have had always been in touch, but this we regularly meet every two weeks on Zoom. And this question of touching. Yes. Um, and one of them is a retired Presbyterian pastor. And he was talking about having to conduct services where, for the most part, if the family were there, everybody was spread out, but there was no hugging. There was, you know, he mm-hmm. said a traditional Southern funeral, you know, everybody oh, yes. everybody gets together for a wedding and a funeral, mm-hmm. uh, and there's always hugging. And, and he said, the not touching, it's, to him, that lack of human contact during COVID is probably one of the worst Things that happen other than the death,
1: mm-hmm. uh, the, the isolation, of touch,
0: the and 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 the touch.
1: Yes, we are we are an, uh, a species that needs touch, and we seek it out. And yes, that was definitely a hurdle for the year. And that's why I think when we chose to stay in in place with a group of people, whether it was your immediate family or just your husband, that relationship shifted. Because that, the dependency on that person you sh- you shared time with, with, whether it's a small pod, the trust in a pod, the group of friends who you arranged to see or your children played with, you had to trust that they were not going to break the bond and go outside and expose themselves to the virus. So I believe that who we chose to... Be intimate with, in the physical sense of touch, closeness was really critical during the year, as it was in the novel, and that—that's why people banded together. It was—it was an interesting time.
0: Mary Alice, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edger's journal, and I'm talking with Mary Alice Monroe about her latest book, *The Summer of Lost and Found*. And Mary Alice, we've also talked about what we as South Carolinians have lost and found during this year of of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, the loss of communication, going to church, mm-hmm. churches Zoom. You know, I'm sorry, it's not the same thing.
1: It isn't, but I have to tell you my own experience. I, I mentioned at the beginning how we had started, meaning myself and four other authors, Friends in Fiction. Mm-hmm. And every Wednesday night, it started from (laughs) us just going on our Zoom through Mary Kay Andrews' uh, Facebook page live. And it's hysterical if you go on our website now. We've become quite fancy. We have our own website and podcasts. And if you look at the early ones we have, we're, we're we're going getting disconnected we have people acting like ninjas going around trying to hook things up while we're talking to being quite professional now but what's so beautiful is that it's we just celebrated 1 year and so many of our listeners and we've grown to over nearly 40,000 listeners now we hear constantly and it's so heartwarming how all these people, mostly women, who listened to our show said, thank you for being there for us on Wednesday night. We were alone. We were lonely. And you brought us your your humor, your personalities, but you also brought in guests. And we wouldn't miss this Wednesday night for anything. And thank you. And it goes to your point that we did not know what we were doing when we started Friends in Fiction, and yet we've created an oasis for people to come to on Wednesday night on Zoom. That's been a real blessing for us. We take that to heart,
0: well, given your writing schedule, how can you c- keep up with another project?
1: It's been difficult because it's like you said it's another job. it really is, and I think that we all, all five of us, the Fab Five, we get nicknamed, we've been working very hard because it's a learning curve. Walter, you are an expert in the field. But those of us who are just learning how to do conversations and bringing in guests, it's been an upward climb. But as I said, it's been so rewarding. And as long as they'll listen, we'll continue. But the books come first. Well all of us know we are writers first and foremost. But interestingly, this last year, even though this was maybe the hardest book I ever wrote because I was writing in real time. And I can in a minute, I'll tell you how it differs from my usual process. But even though we were working with friends in fiction, I think that not going on tour afforded us time at home, and all of us actually got ahead in our writing projects. I actually have three books out this season. I have the anthology with um, Reunion Beach with mm-hmm. Four, Dorothy Benton Frank's memory, and then my novel, The Summer of Lost and Found, and then my middle grade, The Islanders. I've never had three books out back-to-back, April, May, June, and that's been keeping me very busy. Going back to the lesson I learned, I'm taking each day a little slower... I'm taking deep breaths. I'm making sure I take a walk and and smell the roses. In my case, smell the salt from the ocean. And taking care of my mental health in a slowing down kind of way. I'm not going to go back to the harried, frantic pace, the hamster wheel that I used to be on. And I'll probably slow down in my writing now.
0: Well, I was going to say, you're, you've been working on the Beach House series for, for 20 years, yes. but you've written,
1: what, 27, 28 books? This is 28, yes. It's been um, it's been a, a wonderful journey. Every, I felt for years, especially starting with the Beach House, when I made a 20-year commitment to write books that were just set against some environmental species or an issue of the environment, that if it niggled at me, if I felt, if my intuition said this is something important that my readers want to know about, I followed it. It's been 20 years, Walter, and I look back at a body of work, speaking of legacy, and I feel very proud of it. And now I'm looking back, taking two steps back, I should say, and looking at what my next project will be. And... I'm having a little fun with that. We're going to have some very interesting conversations in the future. But I need more time. I'm slowing down to give each book a little bit more perspective.
0: Well, I, I think all of us are, are slowing down. Uh, and, you know, we Southerners love connections and a while back, I interviewed an author from Mobile who has written an incredible book about the Gulf of Mexico. And now mm-hmm. you think, how can you write a book about that? It's, but it's really a cultural one uh, over five, six centuries. Yes. And one of the things we talked about was the decline of the shrimpers on the Gulf Coast. And I thought about moon over carolina
1: yes thank you (laughs) thank you that is still i think the only novel last Light over carolina that is about the shrimping family that's written there's a lot of books about shrimping and sometimes about crazy mysteries but this talks about the hardships the family went through and we lost our own wayne magwood God rest his soul. He was such a gift to me as I wrote that book, took me out on the winds of fortune. And I'll always be grateful to to Wayne. And that book is it really rings true to my heart because that's a vanishing industry.
0: And COVID did not help. No. What One of the things several of your characters talk about is we don't know what The new normal is going to be. Every time I pick up the paper or turn on the television, which I do less and less, people keep saying, oh, this is the way it's going to be. It may be this is the way it's going to be today. We don't know it's going to be the same way tomorrow. You mentioned you had a niece who had lost her job in the hospitality industry. Well, they're opening up, uh, but there are two things. One is Sometimes they don't have enough customers. The other is they don't have enough staff to operate. So we're not really back in that area to, to the new normal. And, of course, children in school, that's changed. But in South Carolina, we now have all our children. All schools are are open. But was there really a lost year?
1: I do feel that the new normal, and I hope we have gained the wisdom from this, will always dictate that we are mindful as on the planet. This pandemic was anticipated for many years, and it finally happened. So I like to think that we will grow from this. It really is up to us as a people. Now that we're over the original shock and fear of the shutdown, I mean, we went through the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And I think we're in acceptance now that life has changed. But it will never be completely the same just as you learn any lesson, any knowledge accrued informs your next decision. And I like to think like Linnea at the end of the book, she wasn't forced to make a decision of what she was going to do with the rest of her life. She looked at this open stretch of beach that was left unscarred by footprints. It was clean. And she knew that whatever steps she made, whatever footprint would be left on the beach, was going to be a, a choice. She was lifted her face to the sun, and she smiled with hope. And I think that's where we all are now. We may, we may not know exactly where we're headed. How can we? We never do. But I think it's the knowing that I'm making this step now with hope, wisdom, and faith that we all will—faith We faith in the human spirit.
0: All right. Mary Alice, as you know, I like all authors to read a favorite passage. So would you select one and read it for us, please? Oh,
1: thank you. I'd love to. This is the scene at the very early in the book where Kara has offered the— Beach House, to Linnea to live in, as she had offered it to other people previously. And she says to Linnea, Linnea, back when I was in financial, she lifted her shoulders and her lips in an ironic smile and emotional trouble. My mother welcomed me into this little house, knowing I'd find my way. And I did. And now it's my turn to offer the same to you. This is what we Rutledge women do. We take care of each other, and other women as well. It's a tough world out there for women, as you've just experienced, she let her hand drop. So, darling girl, no thanks necessary. This is your legacy and the purpose of this dear house. With so many blessings, we pay it forward. Linnea felt the responsibility of her aunt's mandate profoundly. This was a passing of the torch.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Mary Alice, Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today?
1: I hope that all of you enjoy the novel and I hope it's a touchstone of some of the memories you've had and it provides a series of smiles for you as you look forward to our beautiful, precious life that we're moving into.
0: Mary Alice Monroe, Thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal.
1: It's my pleasure, Walter.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. We weren't just talking about Mary Alice Monroe's latest book, The Summer of Lost and Found. We were also talking about her experiences, my experience, and those we've all had during the past year dealing with COVID-19. Individual stories, whether it's hers, mine, or yours, and the characters. And one thing I would suggest, which she suggested, and that is... Take down your notes, your memories of what you went through this past year, because at some point that will be part of your family's history and be part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.